Welcome, everybody, to episode 41 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here, as always, with Bill Rojo. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and this week we are joined again by our longtime colleague now. You are a longtime colleague now, uh, Caleb Weiss. He's been writing for uh, Long War Journal for several years already, and he does a lot of work on al-Qaeda groups in Africa, and we thought we would take this episode, uh, basically dedicate it to sort of recent events when it comes to Al-Qaeda versus France, basically, and what's going on with France's intervention in Africa, um, sort of give you some thoughts on recent developments there. And I'll sort of, before we bring you in, Caleb, I'm going to give, I'm going to set the scene a little bit here. Um, in early January, Al-Qaeda's general command released a statement. Um, and the title of that statement uh, was, if you repeat the crime, we shall repeat the punishment. Now, the crime, the alleged crime, according to Al-Qaeda, is, of course, blasphemy. Um, one of the things that um, Al-Qaeda has repeatedly accused the West and France, and now especially Emmanuel Macron, the French president, of is blasphemy. Basically, they accuse a lot of people across the West of um, sort of smearing the Prophet Muhammad and the religion of Islam. And Al-Qaeda has been using this as a rhetorical tool or wedge issue for a number of years in order to try to justify or give a pretext to its violence. Um, this goes back some time now. Bill and I, we, we covered the cartoon jihad. You remember that, Bill, when there was the, yeah, the cartoons that were, that were published years ago and Al-Qaeda tried to capitalize on the anger and resentment around those um, all the way up through the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris in January 2015, um, which um, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula played a large role in facilitating that attack. And that was an attack that took place entirely in the context of this idea that al-Qaeda is going to defend Muslims against blasphemy. There were also a series of attacks, lower-profile lower attacks across the Indian subcontinent uh, in Bangladesh and elsewhere, where al-Qaeda in Pakistan, where uh, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent uh, belatedly claimed responsibility and also then revealed that this was part, according to them anyway, of a worldwide campaign ordered by Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda, in order to avenge the Prophet Muhammad. So this statement that comes out in early January from Al-Qaeda's general command uh, is part of a long-standing sort of campaign by Al-Qaeda, or it's the latest iteration of it. And we brought Caleb in to talk this week about how that's manifesting itself locally across the scene, the battlefields in Africa itself. Uh, the French, of course, last year um, increased their presence of troops uh, in the region that we're going to talk about from, I think, about 600 to over 5,000. Does that sound right, Caleb, to you? Uh, they sent an additional 600, I believe. But I think it went up to more than 5,000. Yeah, it's like 5,100 right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mangled the numbers. But anyway, it's more than more than 5,000 now is the, num is the number, which is so basically as we sit here, that's actually about the same as the total number of American troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. Uh, so this is for, for France in particular, this is, you know, it's not a major war effort, but it is significant. It's a significant war effort. And I think when we were we were preparing for this week's podcast, Caleb, you and I chatted briefly that it does seem like the will to keep this going inside France is sort of waning. That basically this has become, they're, as you put it, they're having sort of the same conversations the Americans are having here about the so-called forever wars. Um, and sort of, French President Emmanuel Macron actually intimated that this week, I think just shortly before we started uh, recording this, he basically said that he's um, looking to draw down some of the troops there. It seems to basically do assuage 
domestic political concerns and the reality on the and basically because the reality on the ground is very messy and they don't really have an answer for everything that's going on. So let's talk about that though. Let's talk about first about Al Qaeda, the statement from Al Qaeda's general command. I'll give a, I'll just give a few points about that, and then we're going to move over to you, Caleb, and you can take take it from there. Uh, a few points that stood out to me in this statement. One, um, and of course, it repeats this accusation that Macron and uh, others in France are guilty of blasphemy. Again, as I just said, that's part of a long-standing sort of critique or or, or campaign they've had ideological messaging. One of the files we found in Osama bin Laden's compound, for example, was a missive from Ayman al-Zawahiri to Abdul Malik Drukdel, in which he says to Drukdel that he wants AQIM, that's Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, to threaten France, uh, uh, I'm sorry, threaten uh, the Danes, not France, threaten the, Dan- threaten the Danish and others who are involved in publishing these allegedly blasphemous cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. That was many years ago. That's probably that letter was probably 12, 13 years ago now, something like that. Shows you how long this is this type of campaigning has been going on from the jihadis. Um, the other thing is that the, the statement basically says, you know, you can kill our leaders, but we're gonna keep coming because this, you know, the, this uh order, this insurgency they've sparked, this ideological campaign they've sparked has spread. And it basically it sort of poo-poos the idea that killing guys like Abdul Malik Jurkdel, the AQM Amir, as he was killed last middle of last year. The idea that that's going to end their jihad, they sort of dismiss that idea. And then the other thing about the Al-Qaeda General Command Statement is it addresses Al-Qaeda in Mali, Yemen, the Islamic Maghreb, Somalia, and and their Mujahideen brothers in the rest of the world and sort of implores them to take the fight to the French and says that basically at this point in time, you know, the French are guilty of blasphemy and we need to make them pay. So that sort of sets the scene a little bit from the statement from Al-Qaeda's General Command. Now, why don't you give us a little bit of a background, Caleb, on what's actually been going on here and what you've been covering and what we're going to publish at the Long War Journal, sort of giving a summary of sort of the recent attacks by Al-Qaeda's branches in in West Africa against the French. Yes. So really, they kind of upped their attacks against the French uh, in late December. Uh, I believe it was on December 28th or 29th that uh, Jane I.M., Essentially, detonate an IED on uh, French troops. Yeah, I am. That's the yeah. the that's the give that that's the abbreviation. The used group the, for support of uh, Islam and Muslims. Um, essentially, it, I mean, it's AQ in, in West Africa. Uh, they claimed an IED on French soldiers, French soldiers near Hambori, which is in central Mali. Um, in that statement, afterwards, they kind of you know went on their usual. You know, rant against France, kind of the same things that Al Qaeda would hit. Um, Al Qaeda actually released that statement, I think, a day or two after that statement, um, and they kind of hit on the same points that you know we're, we're targeting France because of their crimes that they committed against Muslims in France, but also what they're doing to us in in Mali, um, and that was sort of their justification, and it's their long running justification that they do uh, whenever they attack you know the French in Mali, um, and then a few days after that. Uh, they actually did another IED um, on French troops, but this time in the northern Manaka region. Um, and they kind of, uh, afterwards that, they wished another statement, which we can go into in a little bit. But uh, I think the most important attack that they did uh, was actually on January 8th. Um, they actually claimed a suicide bombing uh, on French troops, also near Hambori. Um, and this is kind of stands out to me because JNIM really doesn't do that many suicide bombings as a you know, compared to other Al-Qaeda branches or other jihadist groups. So that they actually did a suicide bombing, you know, kind of stands out to me as, you know, kind of significant that they would actually dedicate that resource to attacking the French in this time. Um, and all of these statements kind of had a general theme that, that, again, fit with Al-Qaeda's general command and what they said um, in their statement 
Uh, and I think we should probably point out specifically that in the the statement following the uh, idea Manaka that they addressed AQ uh, General Command directly. Uh, in their statement, they, they explicitly said uh, to our leaders and our sheikhs in Al-Qaeda, essentially that, you know, that we heard you and, you know, your your words will be transformed into actions on the ground, as I think was what they said, um, which I think is, you know, pretty telling of, you know, the overall global campaign that Al-Qaeda is trying to do and, and the way in which JNIM sees itself as part of that campaign. And let's just pause there for a second. I mean, this is, you know, one of those issues where so JNIM is openly signaling that they're loyal to Al-Qaeda senior leadership. This is something that some people like to poo-poo. They like to dismiss for their own whatever reasons. Who cares? Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, this it's trying to remove agency from this group that is openly saying that it's acting in accordance with Al-Qaeda senior leadership's desires, wishes, guidelines, what have you, right? Right, absolutely. And I think that gets back into the, the wider debate that you and I talk about all the time between the, the this this false dichotomy between, you know, the local and the global issues here of that, yeah, JNIM is a you know, this this Sahelian focused group, right? But they see themselves as part of this global jihad. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what the global jihad is and that, you know, the local issues are the global issues and the global issues are the local issues. There's no distinguishing between these groups. Uh, I don't remember what specific, you know, jihad. Well, I would, what I would say is that the line is blurred. Right? No, it's absolutely I mean, they, blurred. They, yeah. they blurred the line themselves because a lot, I mean, yes, a lot of their violence is locally focused. They live in a local environment. I mean, they're human beings, right? Yeah. Where are they going to live? They have to live somewhere, right? Exactly. And, and I think, the, yeah. the, the idea that they're not going to be locally situated is is just ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, like, but it, it's a false but, binary it's, created it's, by this field, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> like we, yeah, we're but, but projecting that. Right. There's also, but it's also based in this misunderstanding of Al-Qaeda because the idea of this phony understanding of Al-Qaeda has always been that they're just interested in attacking the West and hitting the U.S. and European nations, and they're not interested in these local power struggles. And the, the exact opposite is true. Um, you know, I've got a book that I co-authored that's being published with David Gartenstein-Ross, our longtime colleague, that talks about this at great length and shows, you know, there's just, I mean, it's not debatable. Al-Qaeda has always had these these local games, power games that they've been interested in trying to play, embedding its ideology in the sort of local milieu and, and increasing its ranks that way and increasing its strength. Um, I, I don't think that, as we've talked about on this podcast, that doesn't mean the U.S. should try and root this out everywhere it, it appears. Uh, far from it. I, I you know, have absolutely no desire to get further involved in West Africa, and the U.S. should not, uh, but um, at least in, in the name of fighting this. Um, but that doesn't shouldn't change your analysis of what the situation is and what's going on. So, all right. So, give us a little bit more here. So, uh, what is it? Five French, I think five French soldiers have been killed, and what four UN peace, peacekeepers? I think so. Is that, actually, right? five UN peacekeepers. Um, there Sorry, were four okay. Ivorians yeah. and the one Egyptian. One. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, ten soldiers in the last couple of weeks, um, which is pretty significant. Um, you know, J and I M kind of goes on these spurts where they'll do a lot of attacks and you know they claim them. And then they may they may do other attacks, but not claim them. So it's it's kind of significant that they're taking this time, following this increased pressure on France to claim this you know flurry of attacks. And I think that's you know kind of significant. Um, and you know I kind of do want to talk about what they're exactly saying in these statements because there's a few things in here that other than the our leaders and our sheikhs Al Qaeda that you know really stand out to me and really gets at you know JNIM's overall you know modus operandi of like how they see themselves and how they're positing themselves in West Africa. And, you know, one of the things that th all three of the, the the attack statements that they've released in the past few weeks have hit on this theme that JNIM is this local defender. They are the community defender of the Muslims. 
you know, uh, essentially in every statement they've attacked France for what France has been saying is their justification for being in, in the Sahel is that they are there to protect the French, but also to protect local Muslims from Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So Al-Qaeda has kind of interjected themselves in this wider debate going on in France of, of why, they, why they're there, of saying that, no, you're there to kill us. You're not actually protecting the Muslims, you're killing them. Uh, and in fact, they use the example of a uh, recent airstrike in central Mali that may or may not have killed civilians. It's kind of being debated, but to Jane I am, they did kill civilians, and therefore that's the the prime example that France is only there to kill Muslims. So in these statements, they're kind of you know positing two locals in Mali, but also in France of like, hey, you guys are killing us. We are the better defender for the local Muslims. Uh, you know, and I think in in one statement they actually say it doesn't matter what religion you are. We are here to protect you. Um, and I think that it kind of gets at the wider theme of JNIM has kind of, they're portraying themselves as wider than just a group for Muslims. It's like, of course, they are a jihadist group and everything, but they're trying to, by saying that, you know, regardless of your religion, that we are, we're going to protect you. Um, I, I think this really gets at their, their wider MO. And I think this is seen across the board. Well, if, if they made peace deals with non-Muslim militias, they made peace deals with non-Muslim yeah. communities. But that's whole part of their project is to be this governing force. And they understand that, you know, there's not Muslims in here and they have to appeal to them. And I think this is part of Al-Qaeda's, you know, long-term strategy writ large to be this governing force. Um, and they understand that non-Muslims are going to be part of that. And I think JNIM is really doing a, a really good job of standing out, of, of making sure that that's explicit, that they, they are acting in that capacity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it serves two, two. Let me just say two two things. On it. One, I think it serves the purpose of trying to eject the French, right? They're trying. That's they're trying to rally anti-French sentiment, which obviously is going to rise. And and you know, French politicians, including Macron, now have to deal with that. And that's probably the context behind his statement that he's looking to to remove some forces. Um, but the second of all, to the governing aspect, what you're talking about, they're trying to build the Islamic Emirate. I mean, this is part of a long-standing project they've had in the region, where you know, AQIM and its affiliated groups, including groups that stood up. Um, you know, have been trying to build this local governance project to raise an Islamic Emirate there for quite some time. And, and basically, JNIM is the latest iteration of that long-standing project. It's not something that sort of came out of the blue. It's something that's actually, when you look back through the primary source documents, their statements, their actions, their behavior, leadership behavior, the whole nine yards, you see that this is something that they've been driving at for a long time. Go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Yeah, no, I... I uh, I'm going to take a quick step back here and just look at at the tactical level. Um, you know, f killing five French soldiers and in, in three attacks over the course of several weeks. Uh, look, this is a difficult question to ask uh, to answer. I get when I get this, I always sort of balk, but I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna have to ask you. Um, so, do you think that the and obviously you're going to speculate here? Um, do you think JNIM has detected a weakness in the French security posture, or have they just gotten lucky, or have they, have they been reserving these attacks for the right moment? What's your thought on why uh, they've had such success in, in a short? Because you, uh, I, I note that there's been 50 French troops killed in in this, this region for what how, over how over the course of multiple years. I'm not sure how many years the French have been deployed there. It was 2013. Just, so yeah, since right, and you've killed five of them, and, and you know, 10 percent of them are killed in the course of uh, just a couple of weeks. So I thought that was pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, again, I can only speculate here. And I think there's two hypotheses of whether or not, you know, this was a coordinated thing. Because they do, like I said earlier, they kind of go on these spurts where they'll claim a lot of attacks and then may not claim that much. That doesn't mean they're not doing attacks, but that just means like publicly they may not be claiming these. But I kind of lead towards that 
this kind of kind of was reserved. They obviously know where the French are operating. They obviously know where their forces are best at to actually attack the French. Um, but also there's kind of an element of maybe it was kind of based on where the French were kind of redirecting most of their forces. The French have been operating kind of in this Gorma area for a long time. Uh, most of the French kind of operates in that Gorma area, which is kind of the borderlands between Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger. Um, the French have been doing a lot of operations there recently, mainly towards the Islamic State, but also with JNIM. Um, so I, I kind of feel like maybe it's a mix between kind of at the right place at the right time, but also this kind of was a reserved thing uh, that was for this larger campaign, if that makes sense. Right. But again, speculation, yeah, no, I have no idea. Sense, yeah. So. I, su- I suspect you're right. I think it's a combination of the two there. They they probably, yeah, I, I agree with you, Caleb. It's They, they probably pattern these attacks with the ability to uh, coordinate it with the, the wider messaging. It certainly makes sense. Thank you. So basically, I think we can expect them to try and keep coming this way. I mean, they're going to try and drive up the cost of France's role in the region. Um, it's sort of obvious that's, that's where they're driving at. And of course, you can see Shabab and other parts of Al-Qaeda have weighed in, praising these attacks, saying this is the right way to go about their business. Um what do you think about the, the French response so far to this uh, in terms of locally and then also back home in terms of domestic politics? Obviously, we're not experts on France's domestic pol- political scene at all. We only can you know glean what we can from you know press reporting. But you know, sort of what do you think is the dynamic here for the, from the French side? Yeah, I mean, again, just to caveat, not a French expert, but I, I do think it's interesting that Macron is kind of really walking a tightrope here of what he can and can't do. Um, I think domestically, starting there, it's uh, since the the string of Islamist attacks last year, uh, his government's kind of implemented a lot of these policies that are aimed at restricting that from happening. Um, but the way they're going about it is kind of uh, reaching, you know, kind of worldwide condemnation for the Muslim community of the way they're going about it, which is kind of banning uh, certain religious garb in certain areas or cracking down on certain mosques and schools or stuff like that. And, I th- and that's part of what Al-Qaeda is trying to capitalize exactly. on. Exactly, and that's sentiment. It's yeah. part of these statements of JNIM has re- released recently have kind of hit on that hard of like, this is this is further evidence that they're really just about, you know, going after Muslims. They're not actually about trying to protect you. Um, but I think that, you know, with the, uh, with the large anti, you know, Islamic sentiments inside France, it's kind of shooting France, you know, in the foot, essentially. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, anti-French protests in Mali, especially, um, again, around the world that Al-Qaeda has really tried to capitalize on to build wider anti-French sentiment. Um, I mean, it, it, it's kind of, a, and then it, it affects the public opinion in France a lot. We mentioned this at the beginning, but there was a public opinion poll just last week in France that, you know, for the first time, the, the overall feelings about the war in the Sahel is, you know, overwhelmingly negative. Uh, the majority of people in France do not support the war. Um, and, you know, Macron has kind of, you know, tried to get out in front of this by saying that, you know, we're going to reduce troops. Uh, and that's, you know, not only to, you know, withstand, you know, the, the public opinion, but also the anti-Islamist uh, sentiments in, in France. But, you know, the, France is really having the same forever war debates that we're having in America. You know, there's, there's people on both sides in France who see that, you know, jihadism in the Sahel is this existential threat, whereas other people are saying, no, it doesn't really affect us. And, you know, what's interesting, 
about that whole idea of this. Let, let me pause you right there okay. for one second because the, the existential threat point—that's not something that we ever make, by the way. Uh, you know, well, the, the, I, yeah, I, but it's yeah, been made I, in America I, before, though. It, yeah. it, ha- it has, but the, I always hate that though because the existential threat point is sort of there's a lot of nasty threats you can face that don't have to be existential. You know, um, you know, President Barack Obama basically said that we could absorb another 9/11 because it doesn't—it's not an existential threat. I would say. No, uh, I wouldn't want to absorb another 9-11. Uh, it doesn't have to be an existential threat to cause massive calamity and damage and problems and, 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 and death. Um, you know, so uh, basically that, I, that, that phrasing, existential threat, that's always been one of my bugaboos. That's why I had to weigh in there when you said it because I, I think it basically is used to um, portray the argument. People have used it in different ways to portray the argument in, 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 in a light that I think is not really – it doesn't really reflect the reality, you know. Uh, but go ahead. Sorry. I mean, you could look at history, and I hate to bring up World War II. Were the Nazis an existential threat to the United States? I mean, were the Japanese? I mean, sure, they attacked us in Pearl Harbor. Did we think they were really going to invade? What you know, we could make this argument in multiple ways. Well, the that's the, that's is the problem with it. And, What's the definition? Right, exactly. Of it? Yeah, and, I mean, it doesn't. It's it, all. It's it's used basically to say by some people use it to say that we need to do everything to combat the jihadis because it's an existential threat, which I disagree right. with. Right. That yeah. you don't I'm with you, Tom. I just you I was trying. You don't to want to overextend yourselves, and we we've, yeah. we've yeah. America's pivoted away from that. But on the other side, they use it to say, well, you guys are just you know not us, but yeah. others. You're just trying to make this into an existential threat to justify military action. And I'm saying right. no, you don't have to make that argument either. You know, so no, we but we need to defend our interests at certain points in time. You have to pick and choose when you do it and I don't know bringing down buildings and attacking the, the it's just one of these it's one of these buzz phrases you know this, yeah. this field and this conversation is, is filled with all these buzz phrases that sort of don't reflect the, the complexity reality of it and don't reflect the ambivalence that people have when they talk about this stuff so or at least my ambivalence so uh, it's just one of those phrases I don't like sorry I cut you off there we had this little tangent here this little rant about existential threats and what is and isn't an existential threat but go ahead no like literally everything you guys just said like the French are having the same discussion. They're having the same debates. So, you know, it's, it's across the board. Um, but what I was going to say is that, you know, as they're having these debates, JNIM is weighing in on these debates and they're actively pointing out their, their take on it. They're injecting themselves in these debates. And actually, uh, in, and that's an important point. Yeah. Right? And I think the last statement, they actually said, like, this is the most clear cut example of them injecting themselves. Is they were like, you know, we actually we don't plot attacks in France. Like this isn't this isn't existential for you. It's existential for us because you're you're the ones occupying us. We're not plotting attacks on your land. You guys are committing attacks on our land. Um, and I think that it's 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 really meant to convey that they're better than France. That you know they don't attack French civilians. But what's interesting is they leave the door open for that because they say that like there are plenty of justifications for doing so, and they don't actually condemn the attacks inside France. They're just saying that we personally don't. But again, they kind of leave that ambiguous by saying that like. But we have plenty of justification for doing so. Uh, and I think this is an important point that you know should be made here is that like not only are they injecting themselves in this, but they're kind of leaving the door open for future things if need be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a convenient argument. I mean, people seize on that to say, look, just you know, now to, to play the other side of this, people seize on that type of language to say, just leave them alone, they'll leave you alone, which of course is all sorts of examples of why that's not true. Uh, but that's basically what it is. And that's not an argument for on, the ongoing French intervention. I think that, that that may not be sustainable. But the point is, is that you know, people like to seize on that language. They know what they're doing when they say things like that. You know, I mean, the, plane, the Taliban's playing the same game, right? Even as they're releasing a video, you know, glorifying 9-11, they say, oh, you know, Afghanistan is not going to be used to plot anything against you guys. Okay. Right. And, and you know, you can see the same thing across the board. You know, in Syria, there's all sorts of game playing. Um, they know that they're doing this, um, and there there are people who sort of fall into that 
trap that mindset. Now that doesn't mean that we should that ongoing intervention should be justified either, though. I mean, it's it's sort of a cost benefit analysis that needs to be done here on all this stuff. No, but it's it's just ambiguous enough to get people in the West or in France to take up that side of the argument to essentially argue for them in France. And it's the same thing that's happening in America with the Taliban. So, right, because we all know we should believe uh, jihadists who like to use suicide bombings and things like that over, you know, our own government. I get that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's we're, as they're launching suicide bombings, we're gonna they're gonna, they're gonna take their pinky swearing that don't worry about us. Gotcha. Yep. It's good. Um, we got it. We're good. So you know, one of the things too in all this, Caleb. I don't know if you have any other points you want to sort of make here. You, let's give you the floor here for a second. If you have anything else you want to say, you can go through your notes and take a second. We. You know how this is. This is sort of a free-for-all on the podcast. I mean, we don't hold back. So, I mean, I think this what's going on in France is kind of all revolved around this idea, and we just hit on this, of whether or not we should negotiate or they should negotiate with JNIM. Um, and this is a long-standing debate they've had the past couple of years, and especially picked up in, in the last year, um, especially you know with Malian authorities saying that they're willing to do so. They kind of motion that they're willing to do so with that large prisoner swap back in October. Um, so this, as France is having these debates with whether or not they should be there, they're also debating whether or not we should negotiate with with JNIM. Uh, and you know, Macron initially rejected that, but actually in the last month he was like, "Well, we could probably negotiate with parts of JNIM," which I think is an interesting and needless distinction between parts of JNIM. Like they're all kind of what can be negotiated with there, and I, I think that's again. Well, I mean, I, what I would say about that is, I mean, okay, you know, if 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 let's. You can test that thesis, right? Yeah. And go ahead and test that thesis. Um, you know, if you think there's parts that, you know, JNIM, maybe there are multiple factions within it. I mean, you, you know, disconnect the dots crowd is going to sort of seize on all that to yeah. play their games. But, um, but you know, what, test the thesis, go right ahead, but at least be clear-eyed about what you're doing and try and understand it. I mean, my my sense from reading JNIM statements is they're willing to negotiate with local authorities once the French leave, that that's yes. basically their, their central demand in all this. I haven't seen any willingness from JNIM's overall leadership uh, Gali or anybody else to say that they're they're willing to actually sit down with the French and negotiate anything other than sort of a French withdrawal. Yeah. Um, you know, the Taliban was willing to sit down with the Americans, right, Bill? Why? Because they knew the Americans wanted to withdraw and they wanted a pretext for withdrawal. And the Taliban was happy to negotiate a withdrawal agreement, not a peace agreement, but a withdrawal agreement. Could JNIM, which miles itself at times in its statements after the Taliban, do the same sort of thing? And maybe, you know. But what the point is, what did you gain out of it? That's the real issue, you know. And so I, I'm not against anything in principle or uh, it's all practical for me and whether or not you have practical knowledge of it. And I think that's the issue here, you know? No, and, and you're exactly right. Jane, I am last year, I believe released a statement saying that, you know, we are open to negotiations with the Malian government if the French withdraw. And I think that's the large, you know, pretext here, but also, by the way, uh, that's what the Taliban did. The Taliban yeah, I mean, exactly. But we'll talk to the we'll talk to the intra we'll have intra Afghan talks. They won't even say we're going to talk to the Afghan government because they won't. This bill, I'm, Bill's going to be seething here. He's going to I'm going to tee him up for a, a, another round of why the Taliban talks are, are nonsense. But <laughs> you know, the, the Taliban was willing to talk to engage in these intra Afghan talks as long as the U.S. agreed to withdraw first. You know, so as long as you give up all your leverage, America, in these negotiations and agree to withdraw. Then of course we'll talk to the right. Interact. We'll have interactive talks. I mean, that's sort of that's sort of my critique of diplomacy. I'm a firm believer in strong diplomacy as long as it's strong diplomacy. If it's sort of this sort of servile, submissive diplomacy, well, no, I don't. I don't know what that does for anybody other than the jihadis. So. No, and that like that question of how genuine the Taliban is or was in these negotiations is the same thing with J and I M. You know, they say that they're willing to, but then they turn around and kill dozens of 
Malian soldiers, you know, a week or two later. So really, I mean, how willing is this? I mean, it's part of the longer game, of course, and, you know, it is a war, but I mean, it's, it's how genuine are they actually with this? I think is the larger question. Well, I, I think a lot of our ideas in the West about this are really stale because they're willing to use politics, including negotiations, to advance their interests. I mean, they have a political agenda, but what does that actually mean? It just means that they're willing to they're trying to build an Islamic Emirate and they're going to use whatever tools they can or methods they can to basically get there. Um, you know, and, you know, so if, if they if they can negotiate something that serves their interests, then sure, you know. Right. I think that's the larger point of negotiations. Like there's this idea that, you know, Al-Qaeda doesn't negotiate or it hurts their brand, but they negotiate all the time. Well, JNIM does it all the time locally. Uh, AQIM has done it with supposedly with Mauritania. Al-Qaeda has done it before. So Al-Qaeda's general command yeah. endorsed the negotiations with the Taliban, you know, in the U.S. And you can see in the U.N.'s reporting and Treasury Department reporting that Al-Qaeda's leaders were actually consulting Siraj Khani and other Taliban leaders as the talks were ongoing, you know, according to those intelligence reports. So the idea that Al-Qaeda doesn't negotiate is false. Again, it shows that people don't know anything about Al-Qaeda. And, um, and the ahead. fundamental question here, you know, do you believe these groups are going to negotiate in good faith? I mean, and that I've seen zero evidence across the board that any these groups are in it for their own interests. They'll they'll negotiate until they till they get what they want. Afghanistan, perfect example. They're going to get the U.S. withdrawal, very likely um, get it. You, we look at what's happening with these so-called peace talks. They keep stalling and stalling, right? Everything was supposed to start back yeah, up. Yeah, the news before we recorded, Bill, was that the ninth yes. round of talks in Doha between- I've <laughs> gone nowhere. I've yes. gone nowhere. They, they, I mean, they. you had joked on Twitter they had agreed on the size of the table. I don't even know if they agreed on the size no, of the I table know. now. Right. I don't exactly. even know if the table, I mean, the ta- I think to me, they're still, you're still there. I mean, but that's well, I think the they're, they're, now they're getting the composition of the table. Is it going to be oak or is it going to be pine or is it going to be teal? No, but and this, this is the point, right? Is I, watch, I watch the people who have advocated for these talks- with the Taliban in particular, and the, the backpedaling is just tremendous to watch. You know, I mean, we, yeah, you, you know, were starting. The, it, it, and I don't want to make this a discussion on Afghanistan, but now we're we were joking uh, privately, Tom, you you and I about, you know, now some people are going, hmm, maybe the Taliban weren't so aren't really in this for peace, and they're they keep attacking, and you know, they are not really interested in in women's rights. Wow, what really? led you to that conclusion because they sat down and, and said something or are you actually watching what they're doing and this is what we're doing this is what Caleb's doing in, in Africa he's watching their operations he's watching how they how they and act their how they conduct their, their rhetoric what they're and when these things don't they line up one way and then people say something else well we can negotiate with them in, in good faith you know you really have to question it these these groups are very clear about what they're about what they want what their their end game is their end game is to establish local emirates to to get a global caliphate. That's what they want, and that's what we have to understand. Yeah, like it's really hard for me to kind of rationalize that a group that openly states multiple times that they're fighting to uh, you know enact this Islamic state based on Sharia that they'll actually negotiate in good faith with the you know a secular government that they that they call apostates all the time. Right. Yeah. And right. that's I mean, the same where's the from Afghanistan and West Africa? It's the same. That's the same dynamic. It's the same thing. And they're, they're, they saw this is part of what people don't get about the talks with the Taliban. And I don't want, like I said, like you said, Bill, we don't want to make this about Afghanistan. But the successful talks with the U.S. in which the U.S. Um, agreed to a weak need deal serves as a template now for the jihadis. They see that they can negotiate concessions after concession after concession, give up little to nothing, really nothing in return. 
and achieve political victory that way. Um, that's that's why you know if you listen to this podcast or see what we wrote, we said if if you actually get a good deal with the Taliban, an actual real good deal, okay, right, fine. Um, but we don't think you will. And no deal is better than a bad deal. And there's no reason to enter into a servile deal. If if you know if basically you may be in a submission, you know I'm not in terms of diplomacy or anything else in life. And you know you can just walk away if you're going to leave Afghanistan anyway. Then why agree to this this sort of deal that only advances the Taliban's cause? And that's basically what I see with the JNIM stuff. I'm, I don't care about you know France wants to try and explore talking to different factions within JNM or this or that. Yeah, that's fine by me as long as they actually know what they're doing. And that's where I don't think that any of these people know what they're doing. And that maybe questions the whole thing, you know. So no, and there was a wider academic debate after you know, kind of Macron or even a little before Macron made that statement of, of like how connected what, well, okay. The debates were like, how organized is JNIM specifically of whether or not, you know, Iragawi and Amadou oh, Kufa yeah, actually control things. Yeah. And then the other thing was like, how connected are they to Al Qaeda? Well, one, we can answer the Al Qaeda part is like they openly state they're, they're part of Al Qaeda all the time. Well, wait one second there. I just want to give one caveat. So Yes, their rhetoric, they're openly pro-Al-Qaeda and people want to, not pro-Al-Qaeda, they're openly part of Al-Qaeda and they recognize as such and Al-Qaeda senior leadership recognizes them yeah. as such. The idea is that there's a lot of people that just want to play disconnected dots on that. That's right. why we talk about disconnected yes. dots. They just want to say that doesn't mean anything. What I would say is that we have historical precedent. We know that there was a lot more connectivity through primary source documents between AQAM, sort of the predecessor organizations to current JNIM, ones that birthed JNIM really. And Al-Qaeda senior leadership, there's a lot more connective tissue there than people wanted to say there was. And we were, Bill and I were involved in those original debates on this stuff. And we were right, but not that we'll ever get any credit for it. Um, but the point is, too, is that in terms of answering that question, how connected are they to Al-Qaeda senior leadership? The answer is we don't really have a full operational picture, right? We don't really know how how much connectivity there is there, how frequently they're communicating because they communicate clandestinely. There's the public statements that they make. To think that that's all there is to the story, I think, is foolish. There's obviously stuff going on behind the scenes. We've seen evidence of that time and time again. Um, you know, the U.S. government just identified Abdul Rahman al-Maghrebi, the son-in-law of Ayman al-Zawahiri, as the general manager of al-Qaeda. He's in Iran. And one of the things that the State Department said about him is he's, he's oversees communications with al-Qaeda's so-called affiliates. Well, what does that mean? What is he doing? You know, we don't have any visibility into what he's actually doing. People like to make, they, a lot of people in the field in particular like to make assertions or assumptions about that. My point is, I don't have any visibility in McGrevy's comms. Neither do you, right? And how many other people are, are, are involved in this? And we don't know what Iagali and, and Yusuf Al-Nabi and these guys, we don't know what their, their day-to-day comms look like, you know? Um, but we've seen counterexamples time and time again where Al-Qaeda senior leadership is in fact you know, talking to the so-called local branches or affiliates and nobody, very few people update their model, their priors, basically, in terms of what they estimate on all this stuff. And that's, that's sort of my long-winded way of saying we don't actually know what their day-to-day or week-to-week comms look like. And anybody telling you that they do, uh, absent a real uh, look at the evidence and intelligence, is sort of full of it, basically, you know? Right. No, it's an important caveat, and I think that one should be made. I'm glad you did. Um but the, the other point, though, I think we do have a clear picture, especially of how JNIM operates. This These pieces were kind of this idea that, you know, it's a loosely aligned or connected coalition of different groups in, in West Africa, essentially. Um, but that's not really how JNIM operates. They have a clear hierarchy. Do They have a clear leadership structure. Um, we know for a fact that Amadou Kufa, who leads JNIM in central Mali uh, in parts of Burkina Faso, that he does defer to Yedagali. He does look to him for guidance. He does answer to him. 
And we know that Yedagawi does direct commanders around the Sahel to do certain things based on his directions. Uh, so this idea that JNIM is this loose confederation is completely false. And, and, yeah. I, and I think that's this, part of this, this wider debate that like, oh, there are factions we can negotiate with. And it's it's yeah, well, part of that. Not to cut you off, but I keep talking, I know. Uh, but the thing I would say is that's part of the disconnected dots mindset, right? That's the paradigm that we've been talking about for years. It's applied to everything. Al-Qaeda isn't even really an organization if you listen to some of these people, right? You know, uh, JNIM isn't really an organization. It's just constantly, you know, just sort of infer, you know, making these massive assumptions about it based on your your what what people want to believe as opposed to what the actual evidence is. And of course, JNIM's own founding video in 2017 said the exact opposite. All these local commanders sat down with the Agali and pledged their allegiance to him and threw him to, at the time, Abdul Jurkdel and threw Abdul to Ayman al-Zawahiri and threw Zawahiri to who? Abutul Akhundzada. That in the field, it was the, the the leader of the Taliban. That's all dismissed. You know, the fact that they're openly, you know, saying this is who we are, what we are, um, is just, is, is regularly dismissed by people. And that shows you just their biases, not the actual willingness to actually engage the evidence. And if I can make a, an example, I hate to go back to Afghanistan, but this we were how many times we're told there's not no Taliban, there's twenty Taliban, and yet oh yeah, oh boy, yeah. both times they actually issued ceasefires during Eid. Um, the Taliban adhere to it. How does that happen if you don't have an overall command? That's it, you know, and we know what that command structure, we know what the, uh, you know, we know if you see them declaring loyalty to their emir and they do all this stuff. Yet it doesn't matter. People still try to tell you the Haqqanis aren't part of the Taliban, even though Siraj Haqqani is the number is one of two deputy emirs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This we see the same nonsense applied uh, in multiple theaters. It's it's really time. And, it, you know, and another thing, too, Tom, you're absolutely right. We don't have full visibility on these groups communications. But when we do see information come out and I think and I know you alluded to this. It it supports the model that they are part of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I didn't allude group, to it. I you know. stated it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, right. Exactly. Files and plenty of other yeah, you know, terrorist right. designations. Plenty of there's plenty of evidence. Their own rhetoric. I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of of counter examples. I mean, the, the Bin Laden files, for example, we keep coming back to. This should have been a paradigm buster. You know, there were people who you know had a whole phony model of Al Qaeda that's been disproven. Um, and, and by the way. You don't have to just base it on the Bin Laden files. There was plenty of contemporaneous evidence from AQAM, for example, and others that show that what the Bin Laden files were saying behind the scenes is what they were doing in front, you know, out in front. I mean, you can put together a whole mosaic of intelligence on this stuff, uh, and which is what we do. Um, it's not just not just the primary source da data. There's plenty of other supporting evidence. But the point, my only point is that we have to have a little epistemological humility here, right, or a lot. Because we do not know on a day-to-day -day basis, week-to-week -week basis, month-to-month -month basis, what's actually going on behind the scenes. Just that we know that the assumption that there's nothing going on, which is essentially what we're talking about, there's plenty of reasons to say that that's wrong. At, at many times throughout history has been wrong. And I'm not going to let that be my prior estimate when I go into the situation of looking at this. Follow me. Yeah, absolutely. Caleb, I have a quick question for you. On, on, again, another tactical question here. Uh, how, can you estimate how much territory uh, JNIM controls in Mali? Do you, is, are they confined to just the north? Do they have influence in the in the central areas? What what is your picture on that? I've realized this is believe me, I do this with Afghanistan. It's it's an inexact science, but we can get an understanding from watching their operations and and statements and such. So I don't have. That's a good question, by the way. But like, I don't have actual numbers on that. I don't think anyone really has the the hard numbers, but we do know that JNIM is at least contesting or directly or indirectly controlling large parts of central Mali, uh, eastern Burkina Faso, northern Mali. 
Um, and these are maybe rural areas, but I mean, in Eastern Burkina Faso, that's, that's a lot of villages. In Central Mali, that's a lot of villages. Um, and so I, I don't know the hard number or actual percentage, but we do know that it's, it's a sizable chunk of, of ground across the Sahel that they're, they're either indirectly controlling or actually controlling. And one quick uh, follow-up on that. You reported, uh, you know, this is <clears throat> outside JNIM's operations, but uh, last week uh, a, a governor in Kenya, uh, northern Kenya, noted that uh, Shabab controls a significant part. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I'm just trying to, you know, let people understand that, you know, the Islamic State isn't the only group that seeks to control territory, al-Qaeda. You know, Tom and I have talked about this on numerous podcasts. Tell us about what's going on in northern Kenya and what that governor stated. All right, Congress. moving from one side of Africa to the other. But sure. Uh, so, yeah, the, the governor of Mandera County, which Mandera County is in northeastern Kenya. It's one of the counties that borders Somalia, actually. And it's, it's been this longtime hub for Shabab activity. They've, they've conducted numerous attacks there for the past 10 plus years. Um, he said in an interview, uh, actually in an op-ed earlier this month, that Shabab was controlling over half of all of northeastern Kenya and 60% of Mandera County, his county. Um, and I think this is telling because a, a lot of Kenyan officials don't like to actually explicitly say how bad the situation is in Kenya, especially in the northeast. Um, so that this governor would come out and say this is, I think, kind of a, a step forward in the right direction of them acknowledging how bad it is in terms of Shabab actually threatening that area of Kenya. And what's super telling is that immediately after that was published, the Kenyan national government came out and started trying to contradict them, saying that, you know, this is false. We've given so much support. You know, Mandera County is, is not that bad. It's really, it, it, it's, we got it under control. And I think that's the most telling part, is that they immediately came out swinging to contradict him. Yeah, and you know what was interesting in that too is that the the governor wasn't critical of the no. Government. He actually he thanked saying, the guy. He thanked the national government. He thanked them yeah. for providing resources and was saying, and yet Shabab still controls. And, and folks, the reason I'm bringing this up in the context of this is you could see there's a, a significant by Al Qaeda in Africa to. Um, to take control of significant portions of countries. And, you know, it's happening in Mali. It's happening in Kenya. It's happening in Somalia. It's happening elsewhere throughout the region. And um, I, I strong, highly recommend you go read Caleb's article on, on the, um, the Somali or the Kenyan government governor's comments about the, what is going on. He is, that's published at the long war journal. So give it a read. It's almost guys. It's almost as if they're waging an endless jihad as opposed almost, to right, almost right. Yeah. Strange how that works. If, it's almost as if Al Qaeda and ISIS sort of get a say in you know what goes on you know that it's not all about you know what america does or doesn't do um let me ask you one more question and we'll unless you have anything else you want to add to this at the end but um where, where do you how do you gauge um isis's strength now in west africa i mean obviously you know there's been an ebb and a there's sort of a back and forth there at times it looks stronger than others um you know there was a time when people thought it was eclipsing al-qaeda in the region i don't think that's true um I think when you properly define what Al Qaeda is doing, it's probably stronger, has a deeper bench and deeper roots. Um, you know, I may have one other question after this, but what do you, how do you gauge ISIS right now? So I think the way you described it as this ebb and flow is the correct way to look at it. Um, of course, you know, ISGS, that's the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, um, at, at times they've been super strong. Um, they actually conducted, you know, Niger's deadliest attack ever. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, they, they did they went up that and they killed 100 civilians, uh, over 100 civilians in these two villages in Niger. Um, but at the same time, in other parts of the Sahel, they've kind of been weakened by French operations or infighting with JNIM. 
but that's not to say they'll come back or they won't come back. Yeah, it's very much an ebb and flow with them. Um, but I also do think that what you said about JNIM's deep bench, that's also the correct way to look at this. You know, they are better connected to these communities. Of course, ISGS does have these communal, communal ties, but they're not looking at these ties strategically as JNIM is. JNIM is, like I said earlier, the community defender. That's how they're playing this. ISGS is essentially the same thing as the Islamic State everywhere. If we are the dominant force. If you don't subscribe to us, you are a kufar. You are you are the apostates. My way or the highway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just a different model for trying to acquire political power, different tactics, but the same end goals, really, a lot of times. Um, I guess one other question for you. You know, a group that we see pop up from time to time, and they popped up again recently in recent months, was Ansaru. Uh, this was always a this is always a fun a fun little organization to keep track of. Uh, fun because it's it's a weird story in some ways. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence again of you know being part of the Al Qaeda web. And what's going on? I was wondering if you had any insight into sort of what you think is going on with Ansaru right now. Yeah, so actually, uh, Jacob Zinn uh, and I actually have a piece in the pipeline right now talking explicitly about this. Um, you know, Ansaru kind of went dormant after 2015 following you know Nigerian campaign against them, but also infighting with the quote unquote Boko Haram. And you Haram. remember, some people were saying it was gone, and yeah. I told you, no, it's, it's, it's care- dormant. Careful. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, these groups, this is this is one of those ones that pops on and pops off the radar, you know? Yeah, so. and, and to Jacob's part, Jacob's done a good job of tracking them since 2015, and, you know, what he has found is they kind of went, you know, some of them went to Mali, some of them went to Libya, um, some of them stayed in, in northwestern Nigeria, and they kind of just weighed low for a while. Um, and then in 2019, I think as the situation, the wider situation in northwest can or northwest uh, Nigeria started to snowball into you know communal conflicts between herders and farmers or Fulanis and non-Fulanis, that Ansari saw this opportunity to revive itself, and that's what they've been doing. Um, I believe it was late 2019 that they claimed their first attack um, since 2013 or 2014, um, and they've claimed I think four more since then. Um, so they haven't claimed that many attacks. We still don't really know what exactly they're doing, um, but we do know that they're back. They're claiming to be back. We do know that they are working with quote unquote bandits in Northwest Nigeria. We know that they're building ties with these communities. We know that they're actually funneling weapons between Mali and Nigeria with JNIM. This is uh, the International Crisis Group actually documented this last year, that Ansaru is directly involved in this weapons trade between JNIM and itself. Um, and with the bandits, we know that they're you know trying to really build themselves back up to be this insurgent group. And then we think that the the larger plan here is to kind of make a contiguous battlefield between you know northern Sahel and Mali and Burkina Faso into northwestern Nigeria, where it's kind of you know this contiguous battlefield for Al Qaeda that they could operate mostly through the Sahel, if that makes sense. We're here with Caleb Weiss, who agreed to join us this week for a talk about Al-Qaeda versus France and then various related issues in Africa. You have anything else, Bill? No, that's it. I, I think we're good. Caleb, you have, you. It, you, you have the floor. You have anything you want to say on a soapbox here on the way out? Anything you want to trumpet your own work or anything you want to say to the audience? No, that's good. Just uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, it's a pleasure. I always love coming here. So. No, and we're going to have you on. We're going to work on. We're prepping the episode Caleb's truck, which will be a humorous episode, <laughs> which, is gonna, which is going to oh, it's going to what discuss, a story. Yeah, that's a story. That's I'm not going to give away too many details. It's going to be fun. Uh, it's, it's nuts. Gonna, I'll it, say that it is nuts. It's a good example of how things can go 
radically awry in today's media space <laughs> based on based on no fault of your own, right, Caleb? <laughs> so No, I uh, didn't do anything, but yet it was such a crazy period. And it came back a year later. But we'll get into it when we actually do that. But it's a, it, yeah, it was a never-ending story wait. for it's, a while. That one, I, I've got, we got to work up the story. We got to get clips uh, from, you know, even Stephen Colbert, yeah, even he, yeah. even he played a role in all this. Believe it or not, it's gonna be it's a it's a crazy story. We're gonna we're gonna get into that. That's gonna be a fun episode. Hopefully, if I can get my act together, we can do that one soon. But Caleb, thanks for joining us again this week. Really appreciate it. Yeah, again, thank you so much for having me on again. Caleb, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Keep up the great work. Keep up. The great thank work. you. Yeah, and keep plugging away. Keep connecting those dots. People like to disconnect. You know, <laughs> I'll do my best. Basic basic analysis seems to be elusive in our field. Uh, in any event. Thank you again to all of our listeners uh, for joining us again this week. Um, we're trying to get back on schedule here after recent events. We're trying to put out new episodes as regularly as we can. We're lining up new um, new guests to come on the show in the weeks to come. We're launching a Patreon page. Bill, we got that coming, right? The Patreon page? That's yes, we should be having that shortly. All right. Um, that should be fun. Uh, if you guys are out there and you're on Apple Podcasts, I guess if you go and give us a five-star review and try and drive traffic to our podcast, I'd appreciate that. I've been informed, as I've said in the past, that there's an algorithm that that likes it when you give us five stars. So if you can do that, we'd appreciate it. Um, we're going to keep talking about these issues going forward. As we always have the big caveat that obviously, as Americans or any citizen really here and across all of humanity, we're dealing with all sorts of issues these days, from the pandemic to global dislocation to all sorts of issues. So we know that what we're talking about in this podcast is not the whole the whole show, folks. We know that there's a lot more to be worried about. Um, but that doesn't mean that the issues that we're talking about are going to go away. So thank you for listening again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you hopefully again next week.